And Lord, as we come to your word now, we, we pray uh, that you would open our hearts, Lord God. You would open the eyes of our hearts to see things that we've not seen before. Lord, we pray that our familiarity with this text would not be a barrier to our growing more from it. We pray by your Holy Spirit that there, if there are things from this text that you really want to show us today, Lord, that you would create in us a fertile soil in our hearts, Lord, that we'd be able to really receive what it is that you're wanting to show us this morning. And we pray, Lord God, that you'd help me to preach your word as it is and not add to it or subtract from it. We pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. The passage that we have today splits nicely down into four sections. Verses 10 and 11 detail Judas's plot to betray Jesus. Verses 12 to 16 are about preparation. Preparation to eat the Passover meal. And verses 17 to 20, Jesus shares that one of the twelve is going to betray him. And then the fourth section is in verses 22 to 25, where Jesus inaugurates the Lord's Supper. There's a lot happening in these few verses. And there's a number of key themes running through this passage that I want to share with you this morning. The first is a theme of preparation. Preparation. And the Greek word for preparation appears no less than four times. Four times. It's not always translated prepare, but that same word appears four times between verses 12 and 16. So preparation is a strong theme in this passage as the disciples prepare the Passover, but on another level as they prepare for what is about to happen just in the next day coming, Jesus being sacrificed himself. The second key theme is a theme of betrayal. And again, the word betray, paradidomai in the Greek, appears four times. The same as the word for prepare. Four times the word betray appears in this passage. Interestingly, if you're into this kind of thing, it was on the fourth day that God made the moon and the sun and the planets to govern the seasons and the times. And if we want to read probably too much into it, those two words, preparation and betrayal, appear four times each. So it could speak to us on some level about timing. About timing. This is a, as people say sometimes, a kairos moment. This is an important time. I say important. It's a massive understatement. This is the most important moment in all of human history that the disciples are about to live through. They don't fully know it yet, but they're about to live through the most important times in all of human history. And the theme is about betrayal, betrayal, the handing over of Jesus. And thirdly, there's a theme here of sacrifice. As we read, they are preparing the Passover meal together. It's on the day of preparation, and they're preparing to eat the Passover meal, which of course is the remembrance of what happened all those years ago in Egypt when the people of God are under slavery and God delivered his people from slavery through the blood of a Passover 
lamb spread on the lintels on the doorposts and the angel of the Lord the angel of death passed over all houses that were covered with the blood of this sacrificial lamb and so that's we must remember is what the Passover meal was commemorating it was commemorating the sacrifice of a lamb without blemish which delivered the people of Israel out of slavery isn't it interesting that Jesus chose that moment that moment as they were commemorating the sacrifice that delivered them out of slavery he chose to inaugurate the Lord's Supper which for us of course is the celebration and the bringing to remembrance of Christ's one perfect sacrifice delivering all those who believe from slavery to sin and to death. We're seeing this line up, aren't we? The theme of sacrifice in this passage. Now I grew up, I grew up on the story of Narnia. Who else grew up reading the Chronicles of Narnia? Yeah, reading the Chronicles of Narnia, and I remember as we ran up to Christmas each year, we would bring out the old VHS players and we would watch the BBC adaptations of the Chronicles of Narnia, which even to this day I still go back and watch rather than the Hollywood movies. I just prefer them. I don't mind about all the dodgy kind of costumes and, and sets. I just love it. I think it's wonderful. So every Christmas we would watch the Chronicles of Narnia together. And there's this moment in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, one of the most important moments in that book and it happens at the beaver's dam mr and mrs beaver prepare a supper for the four pevensey children who've just entered into the land of narnia they're freezing cold they're frightened uh, there are spies of the white witch all around and the beavers take the four pevensey children into their house and prepare them a warm supper and as they're eating the supper the beavers are sharing stories about aslan this is the first that the children have heard and so they're learning about this great lion Aslan who is going to deliver Narnia from a years and years and years of winter. Always winter and never Christmas and Aslan is going to come and bring deliverance. And as they're caught up in tales of Aslan and hope for the future, suddenly Lucy, the youngest sister, notices that Edmund, her brother, has gone. Edmund, bitter and offended at news of Aslan and greedy for what was promised to him by the white witch that he should have Turkish delight, as much Turkish delight as he should want if he should only visit her and tell her where his brothers and sisters are hiding. In bitterness, in greed, in envy, Edmund leaves the beaver's house skulks off into the woods and makes his way towards the white witch's castle to betray his brothers and sisters all for the cost of Turkish delight. Edmund Pevensey. Edmund Pevensey was C.S. Lewis's picture of Judas, Judas Iscariot. Edmund Pevensey is Judas Iscariot. Edmund Pevensey is you. Edmund Pevensey is me, ready to betray Christ to sin 
Each of us, like Edmund, was in need of grace. Each of us, like Edmund, had gone astray and is in need of a saviour, is in need of God to intervene, is in need of Aslan to do something on his behalf. And I never saw this until I was older and I began to realise that I too was Edmund. I was Edmund. And in both cases, in Edmund's case and in Judas's case, it was bitterness and it was greed that drove them to betray those who they loved. As we say, Edmund betrayed his own flesh and blood for the promise of food and drink. Such a cheap price. And Judas, we read from the other Gospels, betrayed Christ for a sum of 30 pieces of silver. He betrayed the Son of God for 30 pieces of silver. That's less than half the value of the perfume that that woman poured out on Jesus' head in the preceding verses. Judas sold him on the cheap. And it was bitterness and envy and greed that drove him to do it. Brothers and sisters, if there was ever a warning to us of the dangers of harboring bitterness in our hearts, harboring unforgiveness, this is it. Bitterness, envy, unforgiveness, left unchecked in the heart, can do untold damage. And it can turn you into a different person. It can make you do irrational things. It can make you justify awful behavior. And so we must always check our hearts. Always guard our hearts. Keep an inventory of what's going on in our hearts. Are we harboring bitterness? Perhaps we've been wronged. Perhaps you are the victim in a particular situation. Somebody has sinned against you and it was not your fault. And when that happens, sometimes we need to be extra vigilant of what's going on in our hearts. Extra careful. Because in those moments, damage can occur in the inmost part. And if we allow the enemy a foothold in that situation, before too long, there is bitterness. There is unforgiveness. And I don't know about you, but when I feel bitter towards somebody, when I feel angry about something that somebody's done, I find any number of reasons to justify bad behavior towards that person. Maybe it's just me. But isn't it true that allowing unforgiveness and bitterness in the heart can cause us to behave in a way that we wouldn't otherwise behave? We've got to be careful, haven't we, to make sure we keep short accounts with one another. Luke and John's Gospels actually tell us something extra about this moment of Judas's betrayal. This is all happening on a Tuesday evening, by the way. This is the same, these verses 10 and 11 is part of the same story that we read when David preached a few weeks ago, where the woman anointed Jesus' head with the expensive perfume. It was a Tuesday evening, perhaps in Bethany, and Judas skulks out from that meal and heads into Jerusalem and goes to betray Jesus. And John's gospel and Luke's gospel give us 
extra information. Sometimes that is the beauty of having four Gospels. Each of them gives us a slightly different eyewitness account. And in John's Gospel, chapter 13, verse 2, it says this, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, to betray Christ. And Luke says the same, that Satan actually entered into, that's Luke's language, Satan entered into Judas. John says Satan put it into the heart of Judas to betray Christ. So we have this conundrum here, don't we? In Mark's Gospel, we have Judas betraying Christ, going to the chief priests, setting the price, and looking for an opportune moment to betray Jesus. But in Luke's Gospel, we've got Satan actually possessing Judas. And in John's Gospel, we've got Satan putting it into his heart. So this is interesting. It adds another layer. We've got enemy influence taking place. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we're given more information, yet more information about what was going on in this moment. In Acts 2.23, Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, and he says, Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So Judas delivered Jesus, but Luke says Satan entered him and influenced him to do that. And then Peter says, actually, no, no, it was God's definite plan for Judas to do that. In Acts 4.27, we've got another explanation. Peter again says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, who you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So we've got in the picture now a really detailed analysis of this event. We have God's sovereign, predestined, definite plan that Jesus should be and would be handed over and crucified. Then we have Satan actually taking a part in God's sovereign plan. Unwittingly, but Satan came and put the thought inside Judas's head. Betray Jesus. Satan didn't know he was accomplishing God's definite foreordained plan, did he? And then we've got Judas down here through his own volition, through his own will and desires, through his greed and bitterness, he himself betrays Jesus. Now the question that many will ask is, well, hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. How could Judas be held accountable for what he did if it was God's foreordained plan that he should do that? How was he free and accountable to perform what he performed? And secondly, if it was Satan who actually entered into him, how can he be held accountable for something that Satan influenced him to do? Jesus gives us the answer in verse 21. For the Son of Man goes as it is written. It was ordained that the Son of Man, Jesus is talking about himself, should be handed over, should be crucified, should rise again. It was written of him. 
We see it all through the Old Testament. Jesus said it was written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he'd never been born. Is God sovereign over all affairs? Yes. Are there spiritual forces at work in the world attempting to influence people? Yes. Are people still responsible before God for their actions? Yes. That's the witness of Scripture. That's the witness of Scripture. Now, we we go astray and we make mistakes when we try and flatten this out and we try and philosophize how this all works. But the truth of the matter is, in any situation, there are those three things going on. There is the will of man. There is our will. There is what we want to do. And we will be held accountable for our actions. Then we've got the reality of the spiritual realm. That there are spiritual forces in this world that are seeking to influence our choices. And then thirdly and finally, we have God's sovereign decree. God has a plan, brothers and sisters. The book of Isaiah says that he's a God who has declared the end from the beginning. It doesn't say foreseen the end from the beginning. It's not like he has some passive knowledge of facts that will take place. It says he has decreed the end from the beginning of human history. He is a God who is sovereign and he even uses the enemy's wicked ploys to bring himself glory. I don't know how I'm not God, but this is the witness of Scripture. And if there is the greatest, if God was able to use the greatest sin and wickedness of all human history in the handing over of the Son of God, for me that is the greatest sin, to murder the the Son of God. And we know that that was foreordained by God. It shows me that God can use anything. God will and can use anything. Even things that we can't understand how that could ever be used for good. God can turn it for good. In verses 12 to 16, we pick up on the preparation for the Passover meal. It's Thursday now, and the disciples are looking for a place to go and to eat the Passover meal as the festival of Passover is about to begin. They head into Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem would have been rammed, absolutely packed, because you couldn't celebrate Passover anywhere you liked. You had to be in Jerusalem. And in fact, the Jewish historian Josephus records a a really incredible fact. Now, I think this might be exaggerated somewhat, but in AD 66... I think it's 66, when the Roman army arrived outside of Jerusalem, Josephus estimated that there were two million Jews in the city at that point. Now, I don't know how that fits, but let's just say there were a lot of people. And so around Jesus' time, around this day here, the nation of Israel would have been gathered into the city. It would have been absolutely packed. Every room would have been taken. And so... Here is Jesus trying to figure out with his disciples. You can imagine them worrying. Where are we going to eat the Passover? We can't eat it here in Bethany. We've got to be in there. Jesus, have you prepared anywhere for us to share the Passover meal? And this little bit of scripture here reminds me, and it may remind you of another moment that happened earlier on in Mark's Gospel in chapter 11. When Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and he sends two of his disciples into Bethany and says, you'll find a cult tied up. Do you remember that one? It's very similar to that, isn't it? Jesus, again, he sends two of his disciples here into Jerusalem, and he says, you'll see a man carrying 
a jug of water, follow him, and then speak to the master of the house. There'll be an upper room that's prepared for us. Very similar. And it's all intended to show us something. Mark is trying to tell us something. He's showing us that Jesus understood who he was. Jesus knew who he was, and he knows his purpose and where he's going. Jesus understood who he was. He knew what was prophesied about him, and this was a sign for his followers to remember that to remember that he's the son of God, that this is all preordained, that he knows where he's going. Nothing is incidental. He tells them they'll see a man carrying a jug of water. Now, we may not think, uh, we may not think twice about what that means. A man carrying a jug of water, great. We'll go in and we'll look for a man carrying a jug of water. That was actually a very unusual sight in Jerusalem. Men didn't carry jugs of water. It was only women who carried jugs of water, or slaves. And so his disciples may have been thinking, Jesus, we're going to be looking for a needle in a haystack. What do you mean we're looking for a man carrying a jug of water? Women carry jugs of water. We're going to be running around Jerusalem all day looking for this man. Sometimes (laughs) Jesus' commands seem counterintuitive. When we're slapped, Jesus says, turn the other cheek. When we're offended, Jesus says, forgive. Jesus says, when you want to grow in stature and in maturity and in honour, you must humble yourself. Sometimes Jesus' commands to us do seem counterintuitive. He promises that we'll have peace in strife. Many of Jesus' commands in our lives can seem counterintuitive. But it's never a risk to do what he says. We've heard the saying, and I've said the saying before, you spell faith R-A-S-K. But that's not how you spell faith. That's how you spell risk. And ultimately, it isn't a risk to do what Jesus says. It may feel risky, and others around you might look at you and think, that's risky behaviour. You're living your life based on faith. You're living your life based on a book that was written 2,000 years ago. How do you even know if it's true? Can you absolutely confirm that what Jesus said is true? Can you actually guarantee that all this happened? It can look risky to the world, but it's never a risk to do what Jesus says because we're trusting not in the words of any man but in the words of God faith is spelt faith (laughs) and we can trust that what Jesus said is going to be good for us his disciples entered in Jerusalem sure enough there's a man carrying a jug of water he leads them to an upper room that was prepared and furnished ready for them when we follow Jesus when we follow Jesus we can be sure that he's gone ahead of us When you follow Christ, you can be sure he's prepared a place for you. He's prepared the future for you. One of the things we pray whenever our kids graduate from primary school to secondary school is, Lord, go ahead of them. Prepare friends for them. Prepare the the right teachers for them. And the fact is, we're praying that in faith that he already has done it. God goes ahead of you and he prepares the place for you. Every single thing is furnished and ready And they came 
And they found a room, a large upper room, ready and furnished. Perfect. You imagine that. It was improbable. You've got a city full of millions of people, but there's a room prepared. You never need worry. You never need worry when you're following Jesus' commands. When you're walking in his way, he will have gone ahead of you and prepared a place for you. Even though it feels sometimes a bit scary to follow him. Many actually think that this upper room is the same upper room that Pentecost happened in. It's the same upper room in Acts 2, potentially. The same upper room as in Acts 4, which is actually John Mark's mum's room. It was her house, many people think. So the gospel writer knew exactly what that room was like. And as they sit down together this evening, Jesus begins to talk about his betrayal. He begins to tell them that one of them is going to hand him over, to betray him to the chief priests and to the Romans. What's interesting is the Bible tells us that they reclined at the table to eat the Passover. You imagine eating, lying down. I, I, can't, I can't barely eat sat down. I, I have to be kind of quite high up. Bex knows this, I need to be propped up. But they ate reclining. Why did they do that? Why would they eat reclining? Well, one of the reasons is that the Jews ate the Passover meal reclining because they were signifying that they were in a place of rest. They'd entered into the promises of God. They'd entered into the promised land. Because in Egypt, they had to eat it standing up, didn't they? With their girts, their, their belts girded, everything ready to go. But in the promised land, they ate it reclining. As a sign of rest. Now, I think it's important to know that they also took the Lord's Supper reclining as a sign of rest, as a sign of God's work having been accomplished. When we come and we take of the Lord's table, we do so from a place of rest. We do so from a place of knowing that Christ has finished the work of salvation entirely for us. We've entered into, through Jesus' blood, through faith, we've entered into his promises, the promises of God. If you're a Christian today, you can know with certainty that God has accomplished it all on your behalf. It's a comforting word. So they're eating, reclining at table, and Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. They all begin to ask, is it I? And the Bible tells us they are grieved, they are sad, they're confused. This is a man that they've eaten with every day for three years. He's a great friend of theirs. The idea that one of them could betray him, hand him over to be crucified, was abhorrent to them. They couldn't imagine it. Jesus says it's one of the twelve. So we can imagine there were many others in that room eating Passover with them. He says it's one of the twelve, one of his closest friends, one of his inner circle is going to betray him. He doesn't announce it's Judas, but he says it's the one who dips in the bowl with me. The disciples, the rest of them are horrified. How could this be? How could this be that one of us will betray the Lord? But the fact is that none of them escaped from this night without having, in some way, betrayed Christ. Not one of the twelve stood by Jesus the whole way through his ordeal. At his hour of need, they all either deserted him, or hid, or denied that they knew him. I love this quote 
from the commentator J. Edwards. The original Last Supper is attended by traitors and cowards. It is a table not of merit, but of grace. Isn't that wonderful? The first Lord's Supper was shared with men who were about to betray Jesus in his hour of need. And yet they all still shared in his body and in his blood. Let us never put too much faith in our own faith. Let us never, never esteem our own performance higher than we ought to. Let us remember that Christ has come for sinners. Christ has come to share himself with people who fail, with people who are broken, with people who miss the mark. For me, this is a great encouragement. That even after all of their failures, Jesus chose to, chose to build his church on the one who betrayed him three times. I love that truth. Towards the end of the feast, Jesus takes bread. And he blesses it, and he breaks it, and he gives it to his disciples, and he says, take eat this is my body and then he takes a cup of wine gives thanks and he passes it around and they all drink of it he says this is my blood of the new covenant which is poured out for many now debate has raged for thousands of years about exactly what jesus meant by this is my body but what we can know what we can know for certain is that Jesus was saying through the inauguration of the Lord's Supper, by breaking that bread, by giving out that wine, he was saying, I am your Passover lamb. I am your Passover lamb. We've got the heart of the gospel in here today. In this day and age, people are quick to say that any old thing is the gospel. People want to strip the gospel down to something that's easy and palatable to say. Like, God loves you, or God has a wonderful plan for your life, or God wants to heal you today. None of those statements are the gospel, brothers and sisters. Those may be true statements, but they are not the gospel. In the Passover, we have a picture of the gospel. We have a foreshadowing of the gospel. If you miss out important ingredients, you do not have the gospel. Just as if you bake a cake without sugar, without beaten eggs, you don't have a cake. You've got something else. And only the gospel can save, can't it? It's the only gospel. It's the only message that's been given to us by God that can actually save souls for eternity. And it's foreshadowed in this picture of Passover. Why was a sacrifice required in the first place? Think about it. Why did a lamb need to be sacrificed? Why did blood need to be put on the lintels of a doorpost? Because a holy God passed over a sinful nation. And without that blood... There was no way that the firstborn could survive in Egypt. 
It didn't matter how upright or religious you were. If you didn't put the blood on the, on the doorposts, you too would have had your firstborn taken. And in the gospel, we have a message proclaimed about a God who is both holy, absolutely holy, without spot, without blemish, not like you, not like me. He doesn't fail. He doesn't fall. He's perfect. He's a God who is holy. He's a God who is just. He doesn't wink at sin. He doesn't acquit people without having their sins paid for. And thirdly, he's a God of love. He's a God of love who provides a way of salvation for all those who come to him in faith. Holy, just, and loving. And outside of the blood of Christ, none shall be saved. I want you to understand that. Without a holy God, you don't have a gospel. Without a God who is actually going to judge sin, you don't have a gospel. Without a God of love who sends Jesus Christ as a substitute for sinful people, you don't have a gospel. You need those ingredients. You you see what I'm saying Those things have to be in place. And Jesus is your Passover lamb. He is the blood on the lintels and the doorposts of your life that must be applied by faith if you want to escape the judgment of God. I'm sorry to put it in harsh terms, but this is the reality that so many are missing out in their proclamation of the gospel today because it's uncomfortable. Nobody wants to tell people that without the blood of Jesus they'll perish, but that's the message of John 3.16. One of the favoured verses of our day. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And people like to stop there. Hallelujah. Amen. That's true. He did love the world so much. He did send his son. But why? So that none may perish. Outside of Christ. Outside of his blood applied on our lives. All will perish. Because God is holy. Because God is just. And Jesus came to be our Passover lamb, brothers and sisters. And when he said, this is my body, this is my blood, take and eat of it, what he was saying was, take of me by faith. As you eat this bread, as you drink this wine, by faith you are partaking in my sacrifice for you. Just as they ate the Passover meal, And they were united in remembering God's deliverance of them. So too, when we take by faith of the bread and the wine, we're partaking in union with Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. It is making us one. It is making us one in Him. And by faith, we're united by His sacrifice. And His blood is applied to the lintels, to the doorposts of your life. And the Lord's judgment passes over. Romans 8, there is therefore No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Dealt with, done, forgiven. I don't think that Jesus was saying that the bread literally became his body. We know that the Passover meal was symbolic in itself. There were bitter herbs. The bitter herbs represented the bitter slavery of God's people in Egypt. But when they ate them, those herbs didn't become that bitter slavery. I know that it sounds a bit trite, and I'm not trying 
to be offensive. But what I'm saying is that there are many statements Jesus makes in the New Testament that are meant to be taken allegorically, metaphorically. When Jesus says, I am the door in John 10, we don't believe he actually became a door. When Jesus said, I am the bread of life, we don't expect that he literally became bread. And so when he says, this is my body, we're not to take that literally as actually the bread becomes his body, but we are to take it seriously, brothers and sisters. We're to take it seriously. There are a number of different views on this, and I don't want to get into a big theological debate, but I do want to say that the Lord's Supper is holy. For me, by faith, it represents more than just a bare remembrance. As we take of it, it really is by faith, us partaking in his body and blood, and the Lord is present by faith as we take the Lord's Supper. I would love for you to consider your position before him this morning as we close. I would love for you to remember that outside of his blessing, outside of his sacrifice for us, there is no relationship with God. And I want you to remember it positively, that you're, if you're in Christ today, if you have faith in him, then there is no condemnation any longer for you. Many Christians can go through seasons of life, can't we? we life is complex. It goes up and down. We go through seasons of trial and difficulty. We go through seasons of blessing and favour. And what the enemy seeks to do is to bring you into a place of condemnation. He wants to bring you into a place of spiritual depression, as Martin Lloyd-Jones said, of forgetting the blessings of being in Christ, of thinking like you're just anybody else. But remember, if you're in Christ today, God no longer holds your sins against you. God's relationship with you is not any longer based on your performance, on how well you're doing this week, but it's based on Christ's performance on your behalf. So his love for you doesn't change. It doesn't grow dim depending on how well you're doing. It doesn't grow brighter depending on how well you perform. But it is effulgent, full and hearty love that God has for you. God loves you today. God likes you today. There is no condemnation in his heart towards you today if you are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that a good word? Wouldn't we be more happy, more confident and more assured in life living from a place of knowing that we are loved fully by our Heavenly Father. Let's stand. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. Let's pray. Father God, we choose to give you thanks this morning that you had a plan in sending Jesus into this world and that plan included us. Your word tells us that before the foundation of the world, you set us apart and chose us unto salvation. And that you, Lord Jesus, were obedient even unto death. You endured the cross on our behalf. You endured pain and suffering to redeem us to eternal life. And we thank you for that picture now of your people reclining at table in a place of rest, eating the Passover. Lord, this is a picture of us. This is a picture of your saints, of your people, that as we enjoy all the blessings of the Christian life, fellowship with God, unbroken, the love of God poured out beyond measure, we do so lying down.
We do so from a place of rest. The work is finished. We need not strive for approval from you. We have already secured it through your Son, Jesus Christ. And may we now enjoy the full blessings of communion with you. May we now enjoy the undimmed love of the Father for us. May we remember that we have been blessed with salvation this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing together.